I want to greet each one of you in Jesus' name this morning. I have been uh, blessed by being here. I've been blessed by the Sunday school lesson, the devotional. Um, it feels like a real day of reflection to me. I was uh, a young man approached me Wednesday evening and said that uh, he noticed that I was to preach this Sunday and told me that he was praying for me and I, I mentioned that I was still studying, I was still not sure exactly what I'd be preaching on. And uh, he said, well, just aim for the bullseye. And um, I think that's exactly where the Lord directed me and directed us this morning. Uh, for it seems like the bullseye was reflection about this week, reflection about today, Palm Sunday. And uh, excuse me if my voice gets kind of crackly, I've been having, struggling with a cold. But I, um, I've, I've titled the, the message Triumphal King. And I'd like to have this to be a time for us to be thinking. If we go home today and in a, in a mindset of reflection about what Christ is doing for us, what he did for us, um, then I believe we'll have um, gotten what, what Christ has for us today. Think about if you would go back many, many years ago as a child, you would be in Israel, maybe in a little town by the Sea of Galilee, and it would be this time of the year, and you would be seated outside under the stars with your parents, and you would be asking them, you know, there's this great event coming up. You've been hearing about it now for two or three months because mom's, she's done cleaned the house. She's, you know, got every cranny and nook cleaned up because company's coming in. Um, father, he's been getting everything organized outside, getting ready for company. Cousins are going to be here. You're excited. Your friends are excited. Your brothers and sisters are excited. Um, or maybe you're the child that's going to go to Jerusalem this year. You're going to go up, make that journey from where you're at all the way up to the Holy City. And you're all thrilled about this. But anyways, wherever you're at, whether you're in Jerusalem or you're at your home celebrating the Passover, um, you're asking your folks, you know, what is this really all about? Why are we doing this again? And that's what I want to be thinking of. Why are we doing this again? Why are we celebrating this week? Zechariah 9.9 says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout. And this, of course, is repeated in all four of the Gospels in the triumphal entry account. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt the foal of a donkey. And I'd like to look in Luke. I think that maybe covers this account as well as any. Luke 41, and quickly read through the, the account of the triumphal entry. If we read uh, Luke 19, verses 
28 through 40. Luke 19, 28 through 40. And let's stand to, to read this scripture. Luke 19, verse 28. When he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, Because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, Why are you loosing the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus and they threw their own clothes on the colt and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then as he was drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered and said to them, I tell you that if I should keep silent, that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. And then we see Jesus weeping over Jerusalem and then also cleansing the temple. You may be seated. The triumphal entry is recorded in each of the Gospels. It's there. It's the history of God's timing, the timeless for now and throughout eternity story of the Lamb of God moving toward the holy city of Jerusalem to fulfill his covenant with his chosen people. It's the history of God's timing, the timeless. It's timeless from eternity past, eternity future. Story of the Lamb of God moving toward the holy city of Jerusalem to fulfill his covenant with his chosen people. And again, why was the Passover so important to the Jewish people? I, I uh, reached back into a book that I just love. I've read it numbers of times, and that is Ben-Hur by Wallace. I'm not sure what his first name is. And uh, I, I just think it gives such a good uh, feeling of, of how the Jewish people must have felt, and also Gentiles, and also Arabs, um, and Romans. Um, but as you as you look back in there into into that account, and you just you feel this this uh, build up toward when Jesus is approaching Calvary, this build up of the ages, you might say, um, taking place in the in the lives of this special people, Israel, and also in the lives of the special people who lived during that timeline. Uh, it's, it's really interesting. You know, so many of them had in mind, when they thought Messiah, they thought of someone who could come break the yoke of the Romans. And in a real way, he did just that, but in a spiritual way, as, as uh, Balthasar uh, so accurately notes in, in, that, in, in that book. He, he said he's the king of the soul. He's not the king of, of the physical, but he's the king of the soul. And so when you reach people's souls, uh, that's a kingship that's much greater than any Caesar could ever establish on this earth. When you've reached people's souls, you have a subject, you have a people for eternity. You have a people that uh, is eternal. 
And um, so I'm, I'm not going to stay there very long, but or I'm not going to stay there, but that it just it gives a, a, a background. I think uh, if you have time to read parts of uh, Ben Hur this week, I'd, I'd uh, advise you to do so, or I'd encourage you to do so. So why was this Passover so important to the, the Jewish people? Well, if we look back in Exodus 12, verse 1, the Lord speaking to Moses and the people of, of Israel there in Egypt yet, and the consummation of their time in Egypt is about up, is about there, and they're ready to move on. The Lord has them prepped. He has them tired of the, the Egyptian Pharaoh. The Egyptian Pharaoh is getting tired of them, and the people are sick of the Israelites. People of Egypt are sick of the Israelites because of all the plagues. And God says this to Moses in Exodus 12, verse 3. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb according to the house of his father, lamb for his household, for a household. <clears throat> Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel and the lentil of the houses where they eat it. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs shall they eat it. Do not eat it raw, nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in a fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. You shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. And thus shall you eat it, with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. So shall you eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. And then Moses goes on to say this to the children of Israel in Exodus 12, verse 25. It will come to pass when you come to the land which the Lord will give you, just as he promised, then you shall keep this service. And it shall be, when your children shall say to you, what do you mean by this service that you shall say it is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. So the people bowed their heads and worshiped. So if you were this young lad or lass in the days of the Israelites approaching the Passover, most likely this scripture would have been read to you and you would have spent time talking about that and reminiscing on how that the Lord wrought a mighty victory, how that he, how that he um, uh, made the, the Egyptians back up and finally get to the point where they were ready to give up the Israelites, how that uh, the Lord brought this Moses up, how he saved him and brought him up to deliver the children of Israel, and that whole story, and the crossing of the Red Sea, and, and so on. And this would have all been in the Passover story, retold to you probably again and again and again. That's what Moses was, they referred, the, Egypt, the Israelites referred to Moses as their father. Abraham as their father. Moses was especially, particularly special to them though. We have for our father Moses, they said, and Abraham as well. But Moses established this he also established the Ten Commandments or brought brought those to the people from God. So you would have heard this time and again. 
there's that, you know, there is that perspective of history that made the Passover so, period so important to the children of Abraham from the time of Moses to today. But now we have a much broader perspective of the Passover. At the dawn of the new, of the new covenant, there was a stirring, a stirring, I see it, by the hand of God that no child of Abraham could ignore. A lad, 12 years of age, shows up at a Passover feast. He shows up at the temple. And he, this lad demonstrates uncommon knowledge, uncommon understanding. In Luke 26, 40, uh, 2, 46 through 49, it says, and I'm paraphrasing here, this young man was surrounded by teachers, 12-year-old, surrounded by teachers. And he's both asking questions and he's also giving answers. And it says, all who heard him were astounded or astonished. This young lad was the son of Joseph and Mary. Uh, upstanding folks. But poor, it seems like. Not, not wealthy, but upstanding. Godly. Joseph was a godly man. Mary as well. He was born of a virgin. Or according to his detractors, he was born out of wedlock. And which in that negative connotation was untrue. God had worked a miracle in the womb of Mary to bring into being the Son of God. This young lad grew in favor with God and man, it says. So you see the stirring taking place in the regions around Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, he was aided by God. He was aided by God-ordained proclaimer, John the Baptist, a man that went ahead of him and says, there's one coming that's greater than I am, whose very shoe latch it's I'm unworthy to loose. And while there's not a lot of history between the time Jesus was 12 years of age and 27 years of age, or when he began his formal ministry, it's evident that Jesus was becoming more and more well-known in the Jewish circles to the Jewish people. He began his ministry. He's victorious in te temptation, temptation of the devil, where he's out and he fasts for 40 days. Then he goes on to select his disciples. And then pre-moving into, or before we move into the, the um, triumphal entry, there's this buildup that's going on there's this ongoing confrontation between Jesus and the Jewish hierarchy. Some of them possibly are saying, you know, let's see more. Let's really see if this is the truth. Others have secretly, are secretly following him, such as Nicodemus or, or, or Joseph of Arimathea, are, are secretly um, at least um, giving him a great respect. And then there's others that are saying, no, this can't be. This won't be. There is no way we will always explain it away. We will never give any room for this man to be the Messiah. 
So we get to the Lazarus account, which is shortly before the triumphal entry. And this is particularly interesting to me, and it was brought up in our Sunday school class. It seems like this was, I shouldn't say it seems like, it's, it's so obvious this was staged by divine hand, this Lazarus account of bringing Lazarus up from the dead. It was a calculated, divinely calculated event. And we have here the passionate, a compassionate and healing king, Jesus. He raises a man who was four days dead. Behold, he stinketh, said one of the, the, his sisters. We read this account, John 12, 1, kind of jumping into the middle of it. Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus, who was, who, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would have betrayed him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Then he, this he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and he had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. But Jesus said, Let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. Now, a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but, they might, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. The window of Scripture we hear that we have to Lazarus, Mary and Martha gives us the impression that they were of Mary and Martha was that these Lazarus and Mary and Martha were well-respected and, and that they were influential folks in the Jewish community on the suburbs of Jerusalem uh, in the little town of Bethany. This Lazarus family embraced Jesus. There seemed to have been a very deep bond between them and the Lord. They fed him. They kept him. I wouldn't be surprised that that's where he stayed when he was moving through back and forth from Jerusalem where he stayed for the nights. Maybe uh, Joseph's family, Joseph and Mary and their family, maybe they stopped there some nights and, and stayed there. We don't know. But there was a bond there, the kind of family bond that I would like for our family to have with Jesus. You know, a, a deep love for Jesus, a deep and, and Jesus for them. And when Lazarus died, Jesus was deeply moved. Uh, John 11, 20, 33 says, Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Very shortest scripture, or verse in scripture, probably. But so, so... Uh, demonstrative of who Jesus was. Jesus wept. He grieved with Mary and Martha. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. You know, here we have the other side, the chief priest, 
who were determined to kill Jesus. And they were determined or to ruin Jesus' uh, influence um, and, and kill him finally. Um, in their determination, they were real, willing to take Lazarus out. Uh, they were looking for a way to, in, in John 12, verse 10, the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death. You know, what foolishness and what selfishness. Selfishness, selfishness that didn't know any bounds. Um, unbelievers to the core. They had a fixed determination, even when faced with irrefutable evidence to do, they had a fixed determination to take away, to negate Christ's influence. Selfish, unholy people. Perhaps they didn't really consider, or perhaps they didn't really think that, you know, if Jesus could raise Lazarus from the dead, four days dead, once, what would keep him from raising Lazarus from the dead twice? You know, why couldn't, you know, if they put him to death, why couldn't Jesus raise him again? It, um, but I don't really think they were thinking that far. They, they, uh, they simply saw someone here who was cutting into their territory, or so they thought. And of course, Jesus demonstrated to them that the temple wasn't their territory. Twice, he went in and cleaned out the temple. But they didn't really seem to get it. That here was a man far greater than them with power that was far greater than theirs. So now you're, if you're back again and you're this child in the Passover season, you're coming into Jerusalem. Don't you think the air would have been thick, so as to speak? Thick with something. Something's happening here. Don't you think you kind of, kind of felt it? Things were tight. The Jewish leaders had their plans, and I think their plans were to kind of sideline Jesus till after the feast, till after the Passover. But the leaders weren't capable of carrying out their own plans. God had his own plans, and God knew what he was doing. The Jewish leaders had been shown for what they were, corrupt, unbelieving, and selfish, power-hungry power elitist. They weren't reaching the common man. Instead, they were living off of him. They had tried to trap and kill Jesus unsuccessfully. And I believe for them, another Passover with Jesus in charge, an unofficial charge, was an unbearable thought to them. You know, they thought maybe, I think they thought they could somehow sideline him maybe, but to actually have him be able to come teach in the temple and uh, see these people just crowd around him. I mean, just look what Jesus did whenever he got around people. People just, or whenever he started teaching, people just came to him. 5,000 people, 4,000 people. He was crowded into the sea. He had to go on a boat so he could teach the people. He was just a magnet. And imagine what these people, you know, hierarchy we're thinking. These people are coming here to Jerusalem to see us. We're the ones in charge. And look, this man here, he just takes over this place. Well, he had the right to take over that place. He was the son of God. And so the king journeys to his holy city. And uh, I'm going to move with through this, through this triumphal entry using different parts of the accounts 
So if you see me jumping around some in different Gospels, that's, that's the reason I'm trying to pull out all the different settings. Matthew 21, 1, Jesus comes into Jerusalem. He sends his disciples after the donkey or the donkeys, saying to them, go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied in a coat with her. Loose them. Bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. So he knew, and in his foreknowledge, he knew that, that whoever had these donkeys, this donkey and the colt, would be willing to give them to the Lord for his use. The disciples did. And you have to remember, this wasn't just like, so... You know, I have a donkey out in the field with my sheep or with my cattle, and someone says, hey, can I use your donkey for a bit? This was their mode of transportation. Donkeys were important to the common man. It was a way for them to carry goods. You don't just, you know, take someone's donkey and take off with it. It's, this, is, this is like, you know, um, having someone come and say, uh, I guess I'm going to take off with your pickup today uh, for the contractor or something like that. And, uh, but, but Jesus knew, and his disciples went, took the donkeys, and it says that they laid their clothes on them. And here I see a picture of a lowly king. He had a lowly birth, born in a stable. Lowly occupation, a carpenter. Lowly life, 27 years of seeming peasant obscurity, more or less, 27 years. Not entirely obscure. There was something very, very different about this young man from others. A lowly ministry. In Matthew 8.20, Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his feet. He wasn't housed in Hilton's. Lowly transportation. Christ, of all men, merited the finest of steeds. Now, there is the thought that there was something uh, kingly about, about Burroughs. I've read that in some commentaries. I don't find that I'm willing to, to uh, have someone correct me on this. I, I think that the Burrow was a common man's, or the, the, the uh, donkey was a common man's transportation. And I think David probably used a, a donkey at some point or other too. But later on, Solomon would have imported fine horses from from uh, Egypt. And, and thinking from a kingly point of view, the, the, the fine horses, the Arab horses, uh, those were what were considered to be kingly. You know, Jesus should have been as king riding, from my point of view, at least riding a beautiful Arab stallion, Arabian stallion, the finest specimen of breeding the Arabs have, had ever produced. Uh, a, a horse just full of energy, raw energy that was, could be released at any time, would respond to his master's touch at any time, um, and, and do whatever his master said. You know, I saw, I saw I, I've had the privilege of riding fine horses. Um, my grandfather had some very fine horses, and we rode those a lot. And... Um, I've seen some that are trained very well, much, much, much better than we could have ever trained any horse. You know, that could respond to their master's touch in a way that was just 
incredible. Um, and that's what kingly horses did. They were trained for. The donkey was a valued mode of transportation for the common man. But again, it, didn't seem, it doesn't seem to me it was the kingly ride. Here was a lowly man or lowly transportation. Um, a man on, in Zechariah, again, it says, I can find that verse quickly. He is just in having salvation lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So there's a very humble entrance in, in many respects. This tells, this tells me that Christ wasn't interested in, in making the military sort of presentation. Rather, he was the Messiah, associating himself with the common people. And that was in tenor or in tune with, with his life up to this point. Not an earthly exaltation, but rather an exaltation of the soul kingdom. People, he rode in on what people supplied him out of their common means. They laid their clothes on the donkeys. He didn't have a fine saddle. Nothing no fine saddle, no gear uh, with, you know, gold inlaid or silver inlaid. Um, it was just simply clothes that people had. They put on this donkey and they gave to Jesus. Simple clothes of Jesus' followers given in grateful devotion. And if you or I would have been there that day, I'm sure we would have been willing to put some clothes on the donkey for Jesus, right? I believe so. They weren't taken, these clothes weren't taken by force through taxation or customs. They were given freely, but given gladly and willingly by common people for the Messiah to ride on. And then we have the messianic praise from all the gospels. I'm, I'm reading from, going to read all the, the different parts of the messianic praise Matthew 21, 8 says, In a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. That's where we get the Palm Sunday, these palm branches. Um, actually, probably from the count of John is where we get the palm part. The multitudes went before him, and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Mark 11, 7. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it. And Mark, and in verse 9, they, then they went before him, and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And then in Luke 19, verse 37, the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And then John 12, verse 12, a great multitude that had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. And I have to wonder how many different kinds of praises were being said at that triumphal entry that aren't recorded here. So here's Jesus receiving the highest praise from the common from the common folks. The common folks who were smart enough to know that Jesus was of 
messianic quality at the very least. He was of that quality at the very least. Jesus had met these people wherever they were. He had turned the water into wine at the Feast of Cana. That certainly had to be a popular thing to do. He had loosed the chains of the man possessed by demons and brought him into his right mind. You know, that man certainly, certainly knew that this was the Son of God. He met the woman at the well. Her testimony was, no man ever spoke like this man. He told me all I'd ever done. He taught, it says, as one having authority. Not like the scribes and the Pharisees. He says he taught as one having authority. There was a messianic teaching there that came from his mouth. An authority. One who not only talked about his master. You know, there's an authority that comes whenever we talk about Jesus and when we really believe in Jesus, there's an authority that comes. But this was the master himself. Jesus himself speaking. And so there has to be a whole different level of authority. One that we could, will hopefully explore throughout eternity. That's a whole different level of authority. The people couldn't get done listening to Jesus to the point that the Jewish authorities couldn't expel him from the temple because of the will of the people. The Jewish authorities with all their you know, their own soldiers, own temple guard, and then the help of the Romans. They couldn't get rid of this man because of the crowds of people that came around Jesus. He delighted the people by his wise words to them and by his condemning, his, his willingness to condemn. You know, as far as I know, and I think I'm right in saying this, Paul apologized because he had smote the high priest. I believe. He said, I wish not. But Jesus never did that. He knew who he was. He never apologized, as far as I know, to, to any of the Jewish hierarchy, even in, their, even in, even in his uh, offending them. And that was because that he was master, and he had that right, and he had that authority. Um... He condemned the people. He called them a generation of vipers. And the people understood this because they saw through these, this, uh, they saw through what was going on, the, the corruption that was taking place. He healed the sick. Virtue flowed from him, even through his garments, to the people of faith. He ate with sinners, such as Zacchaeus. And a notable accusation of the of the Jewish hierarchy against Jesus was that this man eats with sinners. You know, notably, they didn't understand that Jesus always ate with sinners. He always ate with sinners. Um, there were people that were just and righteous, but in, at its core, Jesus always ate with sinners while he was on this earth. He raised Lazarus from the dead, four days dead. You know, by this point, when people were coming into, when Jesus was coming into Jerusalem on this triumphal entry, 
The common man didn't need a Messiah that concerned himself with pomp and show. The Pharisees and Sadducees' denouncement of Christ fell on deaf ears. They didn't want to hear it. They didn't need to hear it. Compare any money-loving or power-hungry Pharisee to the simple Nazarene who really cared for, for them and their soul's needs, their deep needs. There was such a draw of love and a power from above about Christ that the multitudes were just drawn in. And he didn't even need the temple. Jesus didn't even need the temple, but he came to it. You know, he didn't need the temple to bring people to him or for, for people to show up. He could do that on a seashore or anywhere. He had, he, that was obvious. But he, he needed to go to the temple because it was the way of the cross. But then again, you have Lazarus being raised from the dead here close to this time. And it just makes the air pregnant with anticipation. Something's going to have to happen. It says the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. The city was moved, it says in Matthew 21.10. For this reason, people came out to meet him. And look what the Pharisees say in, in John 12.19. They say among themselves, you see that you're accomplishing nothing. No, no doubt they had had meetings about this. Okay, we're going to ask Jesus this question and you know, he's going to respond this way and we'll have him trapped. Or we'll do this and this and this and we'll get him trapped. And we'll do this and, you know, and they got together and they saw what was happening. They looked, they just, looks like they put up their hands and he said, and said, you see that you're accomplishing nothing. Look, the whole world's gone after him. All their strategies to catch, trap, and silence Jesus had failed miserably. And then they put out a desperate plea to Jesus. Reign in your disciples. Reign in your followers. They're being too noisy. And Jesus says, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Jesus lets them know that, that, that this praise is rightful. God had ordained it. Even creation testified of its maker. Look at the resurrection, the stones, at the resurrection, the stones split asunder. They did cry out. Well, in conclusion, I would like to, for us to remember something though. You know, the, the young man, the, this young child, or the young lad that might have been there at the Passover that saw this taking place and saw the changing of the covenants take place. Um, that was truly a beautiful time and a, a uh, noteworthy time. But the Messiah, his work wasn't finished just there with the triumphal entry. And I'd like to, for us to remember that. I'd like you know, there's, as it was mentioned this morning, there's so much scripture that talks about, talks of the triumphal entry to, in, the, in each of the Gospels. There's so much of the Gospel that's taken, takes part after the triumphal entry. And um, I think it's important, I would encourage us to be looking at that part of, of the Gospel after, after uh, the triumphal entry. 
to the resurrection, Matthew 28. But then there is another day coming. There is a triumphal entry that is going to be very, very different than this one. And I'd like to read, close with reading that scripture. One that we should never forget about. One that's going to take place. And, and that that one we will be on one side or the other. Just like these people were on one side or the other. And that's in Revelation 19.11. And I'm going to read uh, quickly through this scripture. Revelation 19.11. I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he should rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of the Almighty God. He hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of the kings and the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of the horses and of them that sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that he that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image, these both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the remnant was slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. You know, however you look at this, literally or figuratively, however you look at this, this is a picture of the triumphant king, Jesus Christ. And... I will say this morning that I believe as never before, the air is pregnant with anticipation of something that's going to take place soon. There is going to be a triumphal entry soon. And whether we witness that now, today, tomorrow, or 30 years from now is immaterial. It's all about which side we're on. But the air is thickening. And I feel that in my soul. I see it. Um, I see it with, with all the evidences are there. And I want us to be ready for that great and triumphal entry that the King has made possible for us to be, to attend. God bless you.